All right, I have an exercise for you. You need to use your mind to create a diagram. So I want you to picture in your mind a circle, a small circle. And in that circle, I want you to place the name of someone that you love to spend time with. Don't say it out loud, but just put the name of a person that you would like to spend time with there. And then around that circle is a second ring. And in that circle, I want you to think, and again, I know you're in church, you're supposed to be thinking lofty thoughts, but just kind of let the old flesh take over for a moment. I want you to put the name of someone that you'd be unlikely to associate with, you'd be unlikely to seek out in your neighborhood, in your place of employment, or even in the church. And then around that, put a third ring, and in that ring, put the name of someone that you're very unlikely to spend time with. And then there's a fourth ring. And then the fourth ring, I want you to think of a name of someone that you just absolutely would not have any interest associating with. And then there's a fifth ring. And in that ring, I want you to think of someone that you would not want to be caught dead with. Now, after the first service, a young man came up to me and said, did you know there's a sixth ring? And I said, no. He says, what is it? He's like, that's for pastors. So he's just joking. We quickly excommunicated him from our church. <laughs> so when you think of those rings, and hopefully in our sanctified state, we don't necessarily categorize people to that degree, but naturally, the point I want to make is there's people we gravitate to and there's people we want nothing to do with. But what we're going to learn, perhaps be reminded of, hopefully not learn for the first time, is that part of the purpose of the gospel is to erase those barriers that exist in the broken natural world within which we live. And what the gospel does is it calls us out of our little preferred circles to bring the gospel to people that we otherwise would not be interested in and therefore, no one is beyond the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our mission field is the world and everyone in it. Not just the people that look like us or of our ethnicity or of the same sex that we might be or think the way that we do, but we want to seek to reach all people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is illustrated for us in Acts chapter 9, verse 32 through to the beginning of chapter 10, the big idea being that the gospel reaches people from all walks of life. What we're going to see is a series of concentric circles. I think the arrangement of the passage is deliberate. A series of concentric circles, a series of healing incidents and fellowship episodes where Peter an apostle of Christ, a Jewish male apostle of Christ, steps outside of his normal circles and takes the gospel further and further and further from first to the people you would kind of expect him to want to associate with, right through to people that you would be quite shocked that he would want any, anything to do with. So I'm going to read the passage and then we'll go back and break it apart into bite-sized pieces. So think of verse 32 as ring number one. This is the inner circle. Peter is going out to preach. And what more comfortable place to preach than in a church with people that sort of think like you do, 
have submitted themselves to the same God that you worship. Speak your language. So here's his ministry, verse 32 of chapter nine. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. If you're interested in the geography of Israel, you have Jerusalem, more or less center right. Tel Aviv is on the Mediterranean Sea. At that time, it didn't exist, but it's in and around the area of Joppa. And then kind of right in the middle, so to the northeast of Jerusalem, you'd have this little town called Lydda. So he goes there and he, he ministers to the church. But then there's a specific event that takes place. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Pretty awesome event. Think of that as ring number two. He ministers to a disabled man. Ring number three. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, come, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, he took him, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And then there's the fourth ring. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. And then there's a fifth ring. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So the middle circle is not surprising. There's no surprise that Peter as a Christian apostle would go to Lydda to minister to a Christian church that probably, a good guess would be, it probably formed there because 
The heartland of the early church in Jerusalem had been under persecution and people had scattered. They were now enjoying a bit of a period of peace, but likely that congregation was formed with the diaspora saints from Jerusalem. Nothing particularly surprising with that. There's nothing surprising when you invite people over to your home for a meal and fellowship that you're related to, their family. There's nothing particularly surprising when you approach someone in church that looks like you, acts like you, smells like you, is more or less like you, and you seek to do ministry with them. And by the way, in the Christian church, when it gathers, not everybody here is part of the invisible church. Not everybody is part of the ecclesia. Lost people, observers, often come in and observe Christian worship. Not everybody is saved yet. So there's a lot of evangelism that can take place on a Sunday morning in a church if you kind of get out of your comfort zone. But sociologists of religion have told us, and it's true because we all intuitively know this, that when people first go to a church, maybe with a few exceptions, but when people first go to a church, subconsciously they look around to see if there are people that are kind of like them. If you have young kids, do they have young kids in the church? If you're a high schooler, is there a youth group? If you're middle-aged, are there middle-aged people? If, are there, if you're a senior, are there seniors? People, people want to feel comfortable. And we often, for whatever reason, feel more comfortable with people who are in our demographic, who are like us. So even as I look out at you today, many of you are sitting in microgroups. You're sitting with your family members. You're sitting with members of your life group. You're sitting with people who are in your age group. This is normal human behavior. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. But sometimes it hinders us from seeing the proverbial foreigner among us, the person who's different than us, the person that's perhaps stigmatized in culture, the person that's different than us. But the gospel of Jesus Christ transcends all those barriers. So he goes to this church and there's a man there who's disabled. Now we know that the natural human tendency is to stigmatize those that are disabled. Doesn't mean it's right, but it happens. Well, you know, I might want to invite someone over for coffee that's disabled, but it's going to be a hassle. I have to get a special vehicle to transport them. If the person has mental disabilities, what's the conversation going to be like? Is it really a strategic investment of my time? Are they going to connect with the rest of my family? Consciously or subconsciously, people make these decisions. And yet in this gospel episode, Peter sees and ministers to a man who's disabled. There's four different people that he ministers to, by the way. There's the healing of the paralytic we're going to see, the resurrection of a dead woman, the fellowship that he has with a tanner, and ministry to a Gentile soldier, which would ultimately lead to that Gentile soldier's conversion. And each of them is an even more unlikely, more unexpected candidate from a sociological perspective to be impacted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you read this, there's going to be no doubt left in your mind by the end of this passage that God calls people to himself from literally all walks of life and he calls us to be his instruments to reach out to people from all walks of life. 
So in order to show the importance of this, each person we're we're going to be introduced to is a person that's further and further and further out of this Jewish male apostle's natural comfort zone. Further removed from his natural comfort zone. The arrangement is a series of concentric rings, deliberate. A diseased male, a dead woman, an unclean man, and a Gentile soldier. So let's break these down and look at why each of them has a significant message for us as it pertains to the gospel. So case number one, aside from meeting with the church, case number one is he goes and he is used by God to bring healing to the life of a paralytic man. And this is a great reminder to us that the gospel even reaches the diseased, the physically disabled, the ostracized. Now bear in mind, we have to make these cultural transitions when we read the text of scripture through the eyes of 2023 Canadian contexts. We spend a lot of time seeking to accommodate, seeking to care for, seeking to break down any stigma in our culture as it pertains to physical disability. And we don't think, oh, that person's disabled, they must have sinned. But in the first century, that was the mindset. If you were disabled, the assumption was, even if you're a Christian, well, you're disabled because before you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you must have sinned or your father must have sinned. In other words, somehow you must deserve it. It's some sort of a judgment from God. Now, we do know that God can judge people with physical disablement or even death. We read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, some of you are sick, some of you aren't even here anymore. In other words, God took their life because they were participating in the sacraments of of God's grace in an inappropriate way. But we don't assume, well, oh, someone's got cancer, they must have sinned. Someone was born with a a disability, they they must have sinned. Their, Their father must have sinned, their mother must have sinned. Instead, we understand that in a broken world, injuries happen, disablements take place. And yet, even in the modern West, there is often stigma attached to disability. So if if Peter was just a strategist, he's like, hmm, there's a little church here. I got to build the church up. I want to build some elders, build some staff, maybe get, get some new church planners. Why would he be spending time with a disabled man? What's this guy got to offer? Let's let's go find the young 25-year-old strapping buck who just finished his university degree and train him up for ministry. But instead, God uses Peter to see this man fully healed of his disease. And he's able to get up and walk. You'll notice even in the text, it's like, put your mat aside, get rid of your bed. It's not like, hey, make your bed like your mom tells you to make your bed, but it's like, roll it up. You won't be needing it for a little while. That's how thorough your healing is going to be. Now, in the present, the same error that was often taught in the first century is still taught today, just packaged a little bit differently. So in the first century, 
Jews would teach, if you're diseased, it must be because you have sinned. There are aspects of the Christian church today that teach, if you're diseased, it must be because you don't have enough faith. And if you just had enough faith, your disease would go away. So the reason why you're sick or you're diseased is because you don't have enough faith. And then out of that teaching would be this idea that if you in and of yourself can rustle up faith to conjure it up, to just believe it to be true, if you believe enough, God is obligated to heal you. And I'm just going to tell you that's false teaching. It's not taught in the word of God. Rather, we have full faith in Jesus' ability to heal. The faith doesn't come from us. It comes from the one who can actually heal us from our physical and or spiritual infirmities. The faith is not of us, but it's in the one in whom we have placed our faith. And that might sound like splitting hairs, but it's two very different theologies. You'll notice that when Luke, the writer of Acts, is recording the various details of this event, he actually records word for word the message that Peter gave to that man. And it's very emphatic. Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. He didn't say, I'm healing you. I'm the healer. Your faith has healed you. But he sources the healing in the God that we have faith in. So let's just keep that in mind. Healing power is not innate to us. It's innate to Christ. He is the object of our faith. Faith is not just conjuring up some sort of a dramatic hope or wish or will. We put our faith in the one who has the capacity to heal. Now, I want you to also note that this man would have been a paralytic while Jesus was doing his earthly ministry because it says he's been a paralytic for eight years. And it hadn't been eight years since Jesus ascended to the Father. So in God's sovereign plan, Jesus walked the face of the earth. He would have known that this man was paralyzed and this man remained paralyzed for a lengthy period of time. So we also know then that automatic healing is not necessarily in God's plan. Sometimes God allows people to suffer for extended periods of time, but when his time had come for God to touch him and heal him, what happened? Many people saw it and believed and it was even more dramatic because it had been going on for eight long years. So God redeems the suffering. God redeems those quote-unquote lost years. And many people are dramatically impacted from this man's healing, which is a beautiful thing. This is a great reminder to us about the way God uses suffering in our lives to often impact many people for his honor and for his glory. So Peter's first stop is to heal a man who is stigmatized because of his disability. But Peter was a guy, and that guy was a guy. So there's some connection there. But now Peter steps into yet another circle. He's going to minister to a woman. Not just any old woman, a dead woman. Is that a good use of your time? Would it be a good use of your time to evangelize a corpse? to provide for a corpse, to visit a corpse, to make a long trip to see a corpse? Probably not. But here we have this much-loved, charitable Christian woman 
who had died. And even more unexpectedly than reaching out to another man, the gospel now reaches women and not only women, but a dead woman. Again, we have to make a bit of a cultural jump here. So we, we have a lot of emphasis in our culture on equality, 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 equality. And you've been raised in that culture. Men and women are equal, men and women are equal. And theologically, that's accurate. Men and women are equally made in the image and likeness of God and have full access to the gifts of God, full access to the saving grace of God. There are different roles. Men aren't women and women aren't men. But we're all equal before God. Now, if that wasn't true, and if it's not also true that at various times in history we've tended to stigmatize people, then Paul wouldn't have said what he said in Galatians 3.28. But here's what he said in Galatians 3.28, in especially to the first century context where women had a much lower social status and in that sense were stigmatized compared to men. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Well, he wouldn't have said that if there wasn't in that culture. The mindset that there's two completely different groups and one is far below the other. There is neither slave nor free. Well, he wouldn't have said that either if in the first century there wasn't clearly two different groups and one was quite a bit lower than the other. There is no male or female. Again, he wouldn't have said that if there wasn't two different groups and one was significantly lower than the other. Then he says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not denying the ethnic reality of Jewishness or being a Greek or maleness and femaleness, or the fact that some people are slaves and some are free men. He's not denying that reality, but in Christ, you have equality and equality to to the gospel and under God. Your your identity as a, a male or a female is equal in God through Christ. So what does the gospel do? The gospel takes that teaching and applies it in this context by crushing the lie that women are somehow insignificant to the heart of God. In fact, brothers and sisters, contrary to what you'll hear in the world around you, it's the Christian gospel that has brought more equality to culture than any other world religion or ideology. Even though they pretend they're into ideology and inclusion. You notice in the world, when the world talks about inclusion, it's actually quite exclusive. It's Christians that brought an end to slavery. It's Christians that elevated the status of women. It's Christians that elevated the status of orphans. It's Christians that fought for the establishment of hospitals and universities and education and social structures that would benefit people financially. Now, the problem is we've given it all away to the heathens. But Christianity redeems and elevates people is the point I want you to take home. And here we see Peter, who could have been ministering to any number of people, traveling to minister to a woman who was dead already. But in his ministry, God is glorified. And again, many are blessed through that, through witnessing that act. I should also note for those of us that are reformational Protestants, that 
while we believe in justification by grace through faith alone, we're not anti-good deeds and charity. Sometimes we have this weird idea, oh, the Catholics, they do the good deeds. We're all about grace and justification. Well, we're, we're about grace and justification as it pertains to conversion, but we're also interested in being good people. We should be charitable. charitable. We should be making clothes for people, providing for people. We need more Tabithas in our churches and outworking in our culture to demonstrate the values and virtues of the Christian faith to those around us. So he, he ministers to a disabled man, then he ministers to a dead woman. That's another circle out. And now he takes yet another step. And this thoroughly Jewish man, Peter, goes and of all the places he could stay, he stays at Simon the Tanner's house. Now you might think, what's wrong with that? I mean, Simon the Tanner, he's by the sea, so he must spend his time professionally tanning on the beach. But this is not the kind of tanning we're talking about. This is a man who handled dead animals, who stripped their hides from them, who cleaned them, who made them into leather. Back in 1993, I visited Morocco. I was doing some missionary work there. And one day we went into the town of Fez. And when you go into Fez, it's quite a convoluted ancient town. You've probably seen pictures of this. There's an area where you can get up on these platforms and you can see the, the tanneries. And they're basically these very ancient pots or indentations that have been carved out of stone, probably, I'm guessing, three, four feet across. And they put the various animal hides in all these different pockets. And there's like bright red and bright blue and green. There's all these different dyes. It's quite scenic. But you see all these animal hides stewing in the heat in this ancient tannery. And it reeks. Now, I don't want to gross you out because I know it's Sunday and you kind of want to chill out from weirdness and you're in church. But one of the chemicals, one of the substances they use to tan leather is human urine. So they collect it. So you're, if you're a tanner, you're dealing with dead things. You're dealing with urine. I happened to buy a nice leather jacket there that was tanned in urine. Brought it home. Being a tanner under Jewish law was permitted, but it was considered an unclean profession. So he's not at the beach because he's tanning. He's at the beach because that's outside of town. He's, he's near the beach because that's where the prevailing winds would blow the smell away. What in the world would Peter pick a tanner's house to stay in an unclean man? How would that advance his cause? To spend time with another stigmatized individual. Well, it's a demonstration of the true inclusive nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Inclusivity is not, oh, we permit evil and we celebrate evil and we make good evil and evil good. Inclusivity means no one is beyond the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has called his choice servants to bring the gospel to everyone. So all those lines and circles, we just kind of erase all that. Now, obviously, there's some people you're going to naturally like more. But we should be willing to interact with anybody and everybody for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, including in the church. So when we come to church on Sunday, helpful tip. You don't just beeline it for people that look like you, act like you, and think like you. You, you go meet people who you've never met before, who are outside of your ethnic background, 
who may be way older than you or way younger than you, you, you go up to them and you say hello. So after church today, maybe not today, because if you do it today, people are going to think, oh, you're saying hi to me because you think I'm weird. But find someone in the coming weeks that you normally wouldn't say hello to and introduce yourself to them. Now, if you're an extrovert, you're like, I love the challenge. If you're an introvert, this is terrifying. But stepping outside of our comfort zone, of our inner circle, is in and of itself a demonstration that we get the gospel. We understand it. We understand it. Fourth, and now it gets really unexpected, we're introduced to a Roman soldier. Even more unexpected than the unclean man. This guy had two strikes against him. A, he was a Gentile. An Italian, no less. Just teasing. I have an Italian daughter-in-law that I love dearly. And he was also a Roman soldier. Who put Jesus to death? Who put the one that Peter loved dearly to death? The Roman soldiers. So here we have a real step outside of it and reminder that the gospel reaches Gentiles. In fact, Cornelius was, some would say the first, but I, I think given the fact that the Ethiopian eunuch was likely actually an Ethiopian, he's the second public Gentile convert to Christianity. We're not going to read about his conversion today. That will be for next week. But now we're just seeing that God visits him in a vision. God will also visit Peter in a vision, and there will be a coming together of the two. And Cornelius, the Gentile Roman centurion, would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine that. Who would have expected that? This should be a man that Peter would have considered an enemy. He wasn't a super, super high-ranking Roman soldier. He was not like a general, but he also wasn't a guy that just stumbled out of the academy either. He was a centurion, meaning he had charge of 100 men. Centurion, century, 100. He had charge of 100 men. The centurions were generally thought of fairly positively in culture, both in biblical accounts. We think of the centurion at the foot of the cross, in extra-biblical accounts, generally those middle-ranking middle soldiers were thought of positively because they had leadership, but they weren't cocky and arrogant at the very top of the military hierarchy. This man is also portrayed as a, as a fearer of God. So even outside of genuine conversion, there are people who fear God, who sought to live more or less righteous lives. He was an almsgiver. So in biblical theology, there's sort of three giving categories. There's tithes, which were practiced before the old covenant law, which were mandated under the old covenant law, which were commended by Jesus in Matthew. They're not, it's not a rule, but it's a good pattern to live your life by where you carve off 10%, you give it to the work of the ministry. But that's more of a planned giving pattern. Then there were offerings where they would give to the building of a temple or tabernacle. And then alms were very spontaneous. Alms were, oh, I see someone in need. I have a family member, they're laid off. I just saw someone that's poor and you spontaneously give to them. That's considered almsgiving, different than tithing and offerings. And this man was known to be committed to tithing or to, to almsgiving, to helping people, even though he was a military officer. And God notices it. God notices it. And this God-fearing man then receives a divine vision from God and Peter and him would come together and he would ultimately come to faith in Christ. But again, that's not for today. I just wanna 
emphasize the fact that the fact that Peter was even willing to have a conversation with such a man is in and of itself in the culture shocking. So we see here these concentric rings. First, he goes to a church. That's easy. Then it gets a little more difficult. Within the church, there's a disabled man. But he zeroes in on him. And then beyond that, he visits a woman who's already dead. What's the value in that? And then beyond that, the rings continue to work themselves out. And we see the gospel spreading further and further to unexpected people. If you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe you got saved when you were really small. You may have forgotten, or you may tend to forget at times how shocking it is that you yourself are a Christian. You see, by nature, even if you're a little better than the person sitting next to you, by nature, we are all enemies of God. We are all rebels without a cause. We are all alienated and estranged from the covenants of God's grace. God says, come, we run the other direction. God says, go, we say no. That's our natural human bent. We are sinners with a capital S by nature. But when God arrests us, and if he got you when you're young, it may be harder for you to remember. If he got you when you were a little older, you may remember more clearly your pre-Christian life. Each of us that knows the Lord Jesus Christ can say, wow, grace really is amazing. But we cannot forget that in our daily ministry. We can't look out at the world around us and say, well, there's some very bad people out there. And we know there are some very, very bad people out there. And they need to be held to account. And their ideologies do need to be criticized. We need to correct their lies and stop them from destroying other people's lives but at the same time pray for their salvation and preach the gospel to them. Instead of saying, no, you get to that ring, I I want nothing to do with you. But rather being willing to take the gospel to all. So here are some takeaways I'm I'm gonna leave you with just to kind of summarize all this. First one, is just a reminder that all have sinned, but the gospel can save anyone. Let's just lock that one down. All have sinned. The all means I'm in there too. I have sinned, but the gospel has saved me. All have sinned, but the gospel can save anyone. So we have an optimistic view of the power of the gospel, even though we have a pessimistic view of human nature. The gospel can transcend human sin. And so let's do our best to share the gospel with anyone who will listen. Secondly, like the apostle here, we should pursue all people with the gospel rather than limiting great commission ministry to our comfort zone, to our comfort zone. And it starts in church. If we're going to be divided up by age groups and ethnicity and cultural status in church, what good are we going to do when we're out in the proverbial world and people are very different than we are? So this is, this is a bit of a practice. Like, you go talk to people you don't know. 
Go ask questions of people you've never met. Come a little early. Stay a little late. Build relationships. Sign up for a life group where not everybody looks, acts, and feels like you do. It's good for you. It stretches you outside of your comfort zone and helps you to see the broader community. Again, when the church gathers, not everybody here is part of the true ecclesia. Not everybody here is part of the true church. We have people all the time that come in. They're just here to observe. So what's this about? They don't know Jesus yet. So if you're just off chatting with your Jesus buddies, how are you going to reach them for Christ? So striking up those conversations, being hospitable to all people, really, really important. Third, I'm just stressing this again. I've already stated it, but good deeds don't save, but those who have been saved will practice good deeds. So good deeds don't save, but those who've been saved will practice good deeds. We should all be like Tabitha. Some of you are especially gifted in that area. But when you die and people are standing around your casket, will they be standing there with the gifts that you've given to them or stories of how you've impacted their lives? Be a cool eulogy to hear people speak of the tangible ways you've blessed them. Fourth, God can heal but it's his prerogative to do so. God's healing power doesn't come from your faith, but the one in whom you have put your faith is the one that can heal physically, spiritually. And you should be comfortable praying for healing in people's lives. Pray for healing in people's lives, but then at the same time, temper your enthusiasm by believing that if God delays healing, he's working out his plan. It's not because you don't have faith or you're a bad person, you're living in sin. You might be filled with tumors for eight years and then God heals you. But in that process, what's your testimony going to be like? And when you're healed, how is God going to use that to bless those around you? And finally, sometimes we suffer even as believers, but we believe all things work together for the good, for those that love God and are the called according to his purpose. So in all the different challenges and difficulties of life, be it a disease or the death of a loved one, let's seek to redeem our suffering to bring others to faith in Jesus Christ instead of assuming, well, God must not love me. God must have abandoned me, but rather he can, part of our gospel witness is not just, oh, I believe the right things. But part of our gospel witness is our response to the challenges of life. It's much more impressive when someone maintains their faith when, humanly speaking, they shouldn't have faith in God. It's not super impressive when someone's like, oh, I got faith in God. Yeah, but you have the perfect wife, the perfect kids, you're a multimillionaire, you're healthy, you're athletic, you got all these awards. But when you're suffering and God's still is alive and well in your life and you're still worshiping him, that's impressive. And that's a witness to the watching world. So I trust you'll be encouraged by these words and faithful in the great commission ministry that God has called each of us to. 